0: Hi there, thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Well, I do invite you to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians and... uh... In eight minutes, we went through the entire book. Uh, I'm probably going to take eight months. (laughs) All right, so uh, just this morning, two verses, just the opening two verses, chapter one, verse one and two, and you can follow in your Bible, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, that is at Corinth. With all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just so far. And Lord, we've prayed, and again, just to come before you, to pray that indeed you would lead us and mold us through the words that you have preserved from in this particular part of Scripture. Pray that your spirit would open our hearts and Lord, expose ourselves, as it were, in comparison to that which you would have, that which would be pleasing to you. And so may our study of this particular book be of great value in bringing glory to your name in the transforming and transformed lives of each of your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm sure you've heard this comment again and again. I've certainly heard it. Uh, if only the church today, and I've heard it said among us even here at Central, if only our church today could be like the church in the New Testament. Have you heard that said? It's often thought that the church back then, back in those days, had it all together much better than the church today. And the thinking is then as time unfolded, things have gotten progressively worse. Well, we really need to be clear and accurate in our thinking regarding the church. The church back then, the church today, and everything in between has been far from perfect. Very important that we see that. Not until Jesus comes will any church and not just the church as a body, but us as individuals in the church, members of the church, not until Jesus comes will anyone be perfect. We corporately, we individually will suffer, and I use this term, we are suffering, tarnished, we are tarnished with the blemishes and blight of sin. Struggling constantly with sin. It will only be on that day. When finally Jesus comes, that that work or the work of sanctification will be complete. And I I love the scripture. And and it's something we ought to anticipate when when Jesus will do something in Ephesians 5.27, present the church to himself in splendor at that point without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. But in the meanwhile, there's much work to be done. Lots of work to be done. And so my first point this morning, there is much work to do. I think it would be a mistake to think that all is always well and that all will always be well, even among us at the Central Baptist Church. We are grateful We ought to be grateful for progress, but God is not finished with us yet, still working. Again, as a body, uh, we ought to learn and grow. As individuals, there's work to be done, eradicating sin, becoming more and more righteous. And so I want to look uh, over these next weeks, months, I'm not sure, Back at this Corinthian church, and and, and even to give us some insight, we've seen something of that in that short video clip, but it it was a church that seemed to start so well. It started when the Apostle Paul, with the help of Aquila and Priscilla and, and some faithful disciples, Timothy and Silas, established the church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 at Corinth, and there was opposition. Initially, there was tremendous opposition from some Jewish countrymen. Uh, Paul was feeling very discouraged, and, 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 and then God speaks to him, and, and he stands firm. He hears from God in Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people, and so he worked, and, and he stayed, and, and he preached, and, and he taught, and, and he focused on the message of the cross, and after 18 months, left behind what we would describe as a remarkable church, but it didn't take long for the poor to hit the fan. That's an expression uh, that I think describes the context and the behavior of the people we we see already in the first letter and it gets complicated. I was going through it again this morning to try and work out one, two, three, four letters, three letters. But, but this is how I've summed it up. In a first letter that is referred to in our first letter in chapter 5, verse 9, he wrote to them not to associate with sexually immoral people uh, or the greedy, the slanderers, and idolaters. So already there was a problem that emerged in the life of the church. His second letter, which is our first letter, he responds and he reports on the issues of division. There was divisiveness in the church. There was immorality, the ungodliness of lawsuits, and he addresses these issues. And as the book unfolds, many, many practical issues speaks to the issue of marriage and spiritual gifts. Order in the church, because there was some chaos in the practice of gifts, speaks to the resurrection of Jesus, the nature of the resurrected body. And ultimately, victory over death. So you get the idea. This was a church that struggled with issue after issue. And then it doesn't end. The letters are sent, and there's communication, and there's correction. And and again, if I could use that same phrase, sadly, more pawpaws kept coming, flying into the proverbial fan. And so another letter, which we don't have, Paul refers to it as a severe letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 3, 4, 9, and verse 7 and 8. And, and there's pandemonium. There's, there's trouble in this church. They, they, they continue to, to stand in need of rebuke, uh, correction, and encouragement, of course. And and what Paul describes to Timothy in his book, training in righteousness. More troubles emerged in the church. And then there's this further letter. And this is the letter that we're going to consider Uh, the second uh, Corinthians. Now, my point is this, this. All of that information is this. Can you see how quickly a healthy church can decline into sin and error and even anarchy? Good church, healthy church, planted by the apostle himself, and it's not long and there's trouble. So the church and the members... Of the church needing constantly to be redirected back onto the pathway of progressive sanctification. So there's no doubt there's much sanctifying work to be done in the church at Corinth. Now here's the question Is there sanctifying work to be done among us at the Central Baptist Church? It's all very well analyzing and talking about. Corinth. But what about the Hill Campus? If I may be so bold, there is work to be done. Always. Much work to be done. We are many people, different struggles, people who are hurting, people who are confused, some of us grieving. There is sometimes an attitude of rebellion and and even selfishness and critical nature and discouragement and unforgiveness and suffering the, the, and the list is not done so so we we are people we are people as it started the service this morning our sins they are many your mercy is more all of us each one of us struggling and so here yeah, and elsewhere in other churches there will always be the need for us as God's people to be directed on the pathway of progressive sanctification which leads me to my second point making meaningful progress i know boys and girls here this morning i'd like to speak to you maybe put your hands up where are the boys and girls if you're in primary school and lower let's see them all over the place do any of you have lego okay everybody has lego yeah there we go i'm gonna tell you something about lego i also have lego And we've had Lego in our house uh, since my first son was born and uh, building Lego with my children. And uh, can I tell you something else? Uh, We started when Josh was little building a Lego box. Then I was very, very surprised this past Christmas who my son, the drummer this morning, who is not three years old, but three decades old, got a Christmas present of Lego (laughs) last year. So, so, Lego. So, uh, I learned some lessons from Lego. And the lesson that I learned from Lego if, if you're a Lego fan, you will know this. You cannot mix the cheap, look alike plastic pieces with the genuine pieces. Have you discovered that? If you try and put that Uh, other piece together with it it doesn't stay it doesn't build a firm structure and so you've got to stick with the genuine lego pieces and then also something i've learned and and the more elaborate type lego pieces when you have working cars and cranes and all that kind of thing you've got to stick to the given plan if you hope to finish the model properly and so there's a lesson here that we need to learn, and it's a message that the Apostle Paul, I believe, communicates in these opening sentences of this letter. Like the Corinthians, you are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. But to get to be the finished product that God intends, God has a, an intention for you, those, uh, the cheap look-alike approaches in Christianity won't do. Won't do. It's God's way, God's methods, God's approach. And and we must follow the designer's plan. Shortcuts and own ideas will fail. And so if you hope to make progress, and as a believer you ought to want to make progress, to be on that day eventually when Jesus comes, to be without spot and wrinkle up ahead, Someone who is now tarnished with the blemishes and blights of sin, I want to show you this morning that there are at least three basic convictions that are absolutely crucial to your progress. Three convictions that Paul reveals in this opening uh, greeting. Number one, God calls the shots, it's so important. Accept and believe and receive, because our sinful nature is inclined not to want to come under authority of anyone or anything else. The two phrases, and 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 I hear these phrases. I probably think them myself. Myself is is in any given situation when we're told something, who says? You've heard me speak about that. Who says? Or. This is perhaps a little bit more common amongst us who say we believe the Bible. I'm okay with this, but I'm not okay with that. Selective receiving of the Scriptures. You see, we do need to be told not only how our behavior ought to be modified and changed and transformed, but we also need to be corrected in our thinking, in our belief system. But But God calls the shots. We don't get to determine that. Nobody else gets to to determine that. And and, and the mistake we make, uh, we elevate our own opinion. We think we're smarter than God, putting it bluntly, or the opinion of a particular religious hero. But he says so, or she says so. No, God says so. That has to be a basic fundamental conviction. God calls the shots. He tells me how to behave, and he tells me what to believe. It's part of the struggle that Paul was having with the Corinthian church. You saw in the video earlier on that there were people in the church at Corinth who had been influenced to question and undermine Paul's apostolic authority. And so to set the record straight, and notice this, this is a very, very, I think, uh, Obvious and, and important. He opens the letter with the declaration. Notice verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You'll notice again and again in this greeting the repetition that God is at the center. And the point he's making is he's, he is emphasizing his call as an apostle, his, his appointment to be an apostle had come directly from Jesus, remember, on the road to Damascus. And then there's a very interesting reversal, if you know the the different letters that Paul writes. He he writes over here, an apostle apostle of Christ Jesus, rather than what he normally does, of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Well, Paul was personally commissioned and sent by, what the point he's making, Messiah Jesus. Now, think about that for a minute. Who was Messiah Jesus? Well, he himself was the unique sent one from heaven, and that's what apostle means. Jesus himself was the the unique apostle, the, the first apostle, the great apostle from heaven in whom all the promises of God in the Old Testament found their fulfillment. And not only is he Messiah as the sent one, but he's Jesus coming to save people from their sin. And so here's the implication. Jesus came by the will of God. The Father sent him. And Paul the apostle also came by the will of God. And so for anyone to ignore the authority of Paul, in effect, is challenging the authority of God. Now, I thought, how can I try to illustrate this? And I, yesterday, again, and I'm sure you have it all the time, uh, have you noticed the beggars and car guards directing traffic? Now, sometimes it's quite helpful, but sometimes it's actually scary. I was at a big intersection yesterday. I think it was Atterbury and January Masalele. It's a big intersection. With cars coming in every direction. And there's, there's a guy standing there, but he's not quite, he's not quite making the right movements. And, 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 and people are coming this way and that way. And I'm wondering how long before there's going to be an accident. The, the, the point I, I'm trying to make is uh, it's scary because they're not qualified to do the job. They're, they're, and therefore, they're, they're not capable to, to direct the traffic. And, and so I'd rather follow the directions of an appointed, qualified traffic officer who has authority and competence. Every believer, at Corinth, at Central, anywhere and everywhere, where needs to follow The instructions of an appointed, qualified, sent one from God. Paul is such a one. Along with others, 11 others, those who also authored the New Testament, and of course we have the Old Testament, they have authority. They have delegated, given authority, and we'll get to the definitions of true apostleship later on in the book, but but I'm just trying to make the point that Paul makes. He is an apostle of God, sent of God, and so he has the authority to write to the Corinthians. He has the authority that we ought to submit to what he says, and so the implication is if you don't believe that Paul is God's sent one, well, you won't listen to what he says. You'll keep blundering along with your own ideas, what I call a hit and miss approach to Christianity, and you won't grow into the likeness of Jesus, who is the truth. However, if you do believe with all your heart, as we come to this book, as you come to this particular uh, letter that is written and, and that Paul has written, it's for the benefit of the church. Down through the ages. You then will make progress. I will make progress toward. Being without spot or wrinkle. And so the bottom line, the first conviction that I'm really trying to convey you this morning is an unwavering conviction. God calls the shots. He tells me what to believe and he tells me how to behave. There's a second uh, basic conviction. i called it God owns the church. I think some of you know and our elders really had a bad experience on Tuesday night that I've acquired a little dog. This little dog is called Flopsy. And uh, I was... uh, I think my kids twisted my arm uh, more than a year ago to get this little dog. But I've come to love this little dog. And and the point is, Flopsy belongs to me. I paid a price for her. And uh, I now own Flopsy. And uh, so last night... Uh, I decided I wanted some Kentucky Fried Chicken for one person. And uh, I then also bought some nuggets for Flopsy. <laughs> okay. So w- w- what's my point? I own this dog. This dog belongs to me. And I have authority over this dog. Sometimes she doesn't listen. I suppose like us Christians, we <laughs> don't listen to God. Um, and I take care of her. Because I own it. And, and, and the, the principle that I'm trying to illustrate is that ownership establishes authority and care. If you own something, and that something is precious to you, you guide, you direct, you rule, and you take care. And, and so the person who owns whatever it is has authority over that thing and and Paulia, and Paulia here, Paul here very clearly in this opening address makes this point. He says here in, in in the second part of verse one, to the church of God the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Archaea. So you see, God owns the church. God owns this congregation, the Hill Campus. And, and, and not only us corporately, but us as individual believers. You belong to God. It's a wonderful conviction to, to, to believe and, 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 and see it. It's, it's taught in many places. I thought of uh, quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We respond to the one who owns us. The one who has set his love upon us. The one who is the head over us. And and we're told elsewhere that Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. The Hill Campus does not belong to the resident pastor, me or Isaac. It does not belong to the elders or to the council or to the members. It doesn't belong to the stakeholders, you know, sometimes families or financiers, if you like. God owns the church. God owns this church. And, and so, yes, even though Paul was instrumental in starting the church, God alone is the owner And so what's the implication of that? You see, when we get that conviction established in our heads and our hearts, we understand that our function as a congregation is a congregation of God's people. We, we are people who are born again of the Spirit, people who have had the love of God set upon us, people who have experienced the, the reality of being new creatures in Christ. We belong to God, but we also we live our lives in the presence of God. And, and so we hear and obey the voice of God, and we accept and submit to what He does. And we need to recognize, we need to realize that we are at His disposal, under His authority, under His shepherding care. It goes a little bit further here, and I just thought to, to add this before I end this point. And if you notice that Paul ref, uh, makes reference to Timothy, their brother. And then he also adds that the letter is addressed to Corinth, but also with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Acha, Achaia. They're all brothers and sisters together. That's the point. They're all part of the family of God. And so practically, when you're convinced that God owns the church, You will have an approach to life, I believe, like Isaiah, who trusted God in what he was doing. And I quote Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Oh, Lord, you are our father. We belong to you. We are your family. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Number three, God is the source of help. Well, I think I've made the point that all of us, to some degree, are still tarnished with some struggles with sin. We we all do struggle. Again, I made a long list. I don't know whether I should even repeat them, but things like pride, self-sufficiency, greed, stubbornness, jealousy, lust, idolatry, malice, unforgiveness, divisiveness, lying, stealing, disobedience, laziness. We need help. That's the point I'm trying to make. Every single believer continues to need help. And so Paul writes in in verse 2. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the authors I read said that uh, this could be described as Paul's prayer wish. Well, it's a prayer. It's, it points to the reality of our inadequacy and our insufficiency. And, and so there, there is help needed. And, and the help required is, is in the form of much-needed grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Why grace? (laughs) Because if God gives us, you or me, what we deserve, we're in trouble and we have no hope. So we stand in need of the generosity from God toward us at conversion. But what does grace point to? Grace points to God's condescension in kindness, One of the uh, meanings I found as well is that it's God stooping, God humiliating himself, God coming down, God reaching out, leaving the throne of glory, taking on uh, the task of of saving men and women uh, from their sin by going to the cross. But it's not just grace at the point of conversion. It's continued active grace day by day right to our journey's end. And then peace follows. Because if, if we are of recipients of grace, then we know we have peace with God. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and even peace with others, because if God has dealt with our serious problem, we can deal with our lesser issues with other people. There's another part of the Bible that expresses this uh, help that comes from God, and it's in Hebrews chapter 4. And I'm going to read, it's a couple of verses. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what you're going through. He knows your struggles. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now here's the point of of, of the, the preamble. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me conclude. How many of you watched the King Coronation? I know all the old people did eh? yesterday. Am I right? All three hours of it. So I watched a couple of snatches late last night. I just wanted to get uh, an idea of what actually transpired in the actual uh, ceremony in the cathedral. I went cold when the king kissed the Bible. I don't know if any of you, well, if you didn't see it. At the conclusion of questions asked him, as to whether he would submit to and defend the faith and accept that given him the Bible in this process, he went down on his knees and he kissed the Bible. And I thought to myself, lip service. Because his track record up to now has not been one who defends the Christian faith. Time will tell whether it actually was a genuine act whether it was lip service to God but it's one thing to think about the king I wondered about ourselves if we are not often guilty of paying lip service to God you see the opening greeting of this letter challenged us to consider whether these convictions are really at the center of our lives they ought to be they should be to every believer we, we, we need to be sanctified, there's a process underway, we're a work in progress, and, and there's much work to be done. But that work will only be done as the Spirit of God works in you, as you believe God calls the shots. In other words, do you obey Him in everything? God owns the church. Do you trust Him? God is the source of help. Do you depend on Him? And Lord, I pray that these convictions would really be embedded in our hearts, translating into the everyday living of life, enabling us, Lord, to be molded and formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so again, Lord, as we move in this particular part of Scripture over these next weeks and months, I do pray that at the end of it, we would be able to look back and see some of the work that you've done within us Transforming us in behavior, transforming us in what we believe, that which is pleasing and honoring, bringing glory to your name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.